Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 27 this morning. I'd like to read this passage of Scripture for us. It talks about our future glory and hope that we have with Jesus Christ. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this beautiful passage of Scripture, for the encouragement that it gives to us when we consider all that You have prepared for us in heaven. You've given us everything that we need to live a life that is godly and pleasing to you now. But what a great hope we have of one day seeing you and being in your very presence. Lord, may that hope transform the way that we live today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Uh, we could spend a lot of time here, and that's one of the reasons why I'm having uh, multiple messages out of this particular passage, because there's so much here. I mean, it's just a wonderful text that uh, gives these promises about our relationship with Christ, talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and it talks about our future glory, the hope that we have in heaven. And yet, right in the middle of this chapter is a statement about suffering. Now, why would Paul do that? I mean, right in the middle of this chapter that has all of these glorious promises, why would Paul introduce the subject of suffering here? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for it that will make sense to us as we hear it. Number one, Paul was a realist, and he knew that suffering is a result of living in a fallen world, and we can't ignore it or avoid it. It is common to all men, but we as believers especially feel that in our heart where we see what God intended at the beginning and then we see the result of sin in our world and the consequences of that. And we long for the day when God will make all things new. Believers also are suffering greatly as a result of their faith in Christ. Paul knew that the believers in Rome were suffering. The apostles, the early disciples, all suffered because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Peter and John were thrown into jail. Stephen was stoned. James, the brother of John, was put to death by the sword. Paul himself suffered greatly on his missionary journeys. They were well acquainted with suffering. And those who followed the disciples also suffered. 
I mean, they were mistreated. They were ostracized, kicked out of their family sometimes or their society. They were falsely accused for things that others charged them with believing or practicing. Many died as martyrs for their faith. God's people suffer today too. In parts of the world today, believers are being put to death each and every day simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And most of us will never experience the awful persecution that they endure. At least I pray that we won't. But we all know what suffering is. We suffer when a loved one dies. When someone loses a husband or wife or other family member, we suffer. We grieve when life or our children disappoints us. When things don't go as we planned or things don't turn out like we had hoped for, we grieve. We suffer through pain and illness and disabilities and disease. We suffer through job loss, financial hardships, and broken relationships. We are well acquainted with suffering. Jesus said, in fact, in this life you will have trouble. You know, that message is so contrary to what some in our world preach today. Those who preach a gospel of health and wealth want to say that if you're a Christian, you ought to be prosperous and you ought to be healthy, and if you're not, it's your own fault. Yet that's not what the Bible teaches. That really is an American heresy that's been developed in our generation. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, are believers going to suffer, he would say, indeed. In fact, he's the one that said, through many trials we enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the second reason why Paul talked about suffering here, though, was also because Paul was a shepherd. And he wrote this passage to give us encouragement and hope. He wanted to strengthen the believers in Rome, and he wanted to encourage churches and other places and future generations to hold on to Jesus. Because he understood that suffering is a part of living in a fallen world, but it will not always be that way. The best is yet to come. And so he writes and tells us, first of all, that the glory to come far outweighs any suffering in this present life. Look at verse 18. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When he says that glory and suffering are not even worth comparing, it's not like, you know, simply one's a feather and the other's like a brick on the same scale, you know, that they tip the balance quite quickly. Uh, He's saying they aren't even worth putting on the same scale. I mean, they're in a different category altogether. That's how great the glory is that is to come. Glory and suffering are different in intensity and in location and in duration. And think about what he's saying here. They are different in intensity. There is no doubt that suffering hurts or that persecution is painful or that trials are difficult in our life. Yet the glory to come is even more weighty. And no matter the trial, God's glory and reward are far greater still for the believer. They differ also in location. The Bible tells us that outwardly, this physical man is wearing away, it's wasting away. Yet inwardly, as believers, we are being renewed day by day. And so, this outward appearance, that's not the important stuff. 
The important stuff is what's going on in the heart in our life. Are we becoming more and more like Jesus Christ? That's what's going to last and endure for eternity. And this present world that we live in is a fallen world that is marred by sin. But that world to come in the future will be free from all sin. And it will be made new in that day to come. And in terms of duration, this world is temporary. We are here for just a short time. But the world to come is eternal. Is it any wonder then that Randy Alcorn, the author in the book The Treasure Principles, said that I should live not for the dot, but for the line? The dot represents this present life, but the line represents eternity. And our focus shouldn't be on living just for the dot, but the focus should be on living for eternity. Think about the way that Paul lived and how he viewed his trials. Paul experienced hardship more than any of us. He tells us about the times that he was beaten, he was scourged, he had been stoned and left for dead. He suffered from shipwrecks, dangers in the country in his travels, dangers at sea. He was attacked and harassed by both men and wild beasts. He went through all of those kind of trials in his life. And yet, how does he describe them? He calls them light and momentary troubles. Now think about that. Light and momentary troubles. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. He said, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You know, I know that's easier to say than to do. When you're going through a difficult trial in your life, it doesn't seem so light and momentary. It seems like it's lasting a pretty long time, and we wonder when is it going to change, or will it change? And yet we need to have that kind of perspective that comes before God and understands that He is sovereign, He's in control, He's a God who works all things out for good according to His purposes and for our good, our benefit. And so He takes those trials of life and through them He produces in us a refined character, a greater knowledge of His love and faithfulness. We see Him work in providing for our needs. We see Him give peace and strength and hope. And through all of that, we come to recognize what Paul has said, that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a weight of glory that far far exceeds them all. You know, when we understand what is to come, it changes the way that we live today. That word consider in verse 18 is important. When Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's a word that Paul uses 15 times in the book of Romans. We saw it in chapter 6 when he said that we are to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. What it means again is we are to count on this as true and live differently as a result. 
Consider these things and live differently because of what God has done. Secondly, Paul tells us that all creation will one day be set free from its bondage to decay. We see that in verses 19 through 21 and again in verse 22. He tells us in verse 22, for example, that creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. Now, the birth of a child is a painful ordeal for a woman who goes through those labor pains. But when that child is born, there is a joyful outcome. It takes away that pain. In the same way, he says, the creation today is groaning like in childbirth, awaiting this joyful conclusion, this joyful outcome that is yet to come when the sons of God are revealed and creation itself is brought into the glorious freedom that God intended for it. He tells us that creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. When that day comes, nature is going to be transformed. That word eager expectation, it means to lean forward like you do when somebody's telling a story and you really want to hear it. And they've got your attention and you're listening carefully. Or it means to stand on tiptoe. Like if you're at a gathering of people and you're waiting for someone to come, maybe you're at the airport and you're waiting to pick up a family member and you're kind of standing on tiptoe to see if you can see them coming down the way. Paul says the creation is standing on tiptoe, waiting for that day when the sons of God are going to be revealed. This world will be made new more beautiful than we can imagine. As beautiful as scenes may be in this present world, when that day comes, it will be far greater still. As a result of man's sin, creation was subjected to frustration and decay, Paul says. We read about that in the book of Genesis when we understand that as a result of sin, Eve would experience pain in childbirth and all women after that. Adam would experience toil and frustration in his labor. His work would take a change where before it had been a joy and a delight, now there would be toil and frustration as a part of his labor and for all people afterwards. After the flood, the Bible tells us that the fear of man was placed in animals and man's lifespan was shortened 120 years max. Most of all, For most people, it would be 70 or 80 years if through strength, the Bible says. That hasn't changed, has it? And in the future, all of that will be reversed. It is hard for us to put that into words. I think poets and those who write and who can create pictures for us give us a better idea of what that day may be like. Listen to these words from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Isaiah tells us that the wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest, and they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
It is a picture of beauty and and, uh, freedom from fear and harmony in creation that's hard for us to even imagine. I mean, a wolf doesn't, you know, live with a lamb. Wolves eat lambs. And leopards don't lie down with goats. Leopards eat goats. And goats are afraid of leopards. And calves and lions and yearlings, they don't follow a child. And a cow feeding with a bear and their young lying down together and the lion eating straw like an ox. It's hard for us to imagine the changes that will come in that day. That picture this future world made new. A world free from sin. A world of harmony in creation between even man and the animals. And in that day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. How do you explain that? It is difficult for us to understand, but we get pictures of it in the Scripture of what it is going to be like. In that day, we as believers will also be changed. And we see that in verses 22 to 25. Creation groans, and we who have received the Holy Spirit in our life, the first fruits of the Spirit, we also groan. There is a longing in our heart for that. We have a taste of heaven and we long for the whole thing. We experience that in our fellowship with believers. We experience that when the Holy Spirit is at work in our heart, when we read the Scriptures and it resonates with what we believe. There's a joy. When we come together and worship and we've gathered in large gatherings, there's a sense of God's presence and we feel that. We get a taste of what it's going to be like. But we long for the whole thing. We long for it when we see our bodies wearing out. And we long for the day when we will be made new. We long for heaven when we see the challenges in our world that sometimes seem so overwhelming. Natural disasters, shortages, wars, terrorism, economic struggles and trials. And we wonder, what's the solution? How can we fix all of these problems? It seems so overwhelming. We see people in our world who don't believe in God, who shake their fist at God or who deny Him, and we long for the day when all people will come to know and recognize who Jesus Christ is. He's the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. He's the Savior. We long for that day when we experience sorrow and grief and separation when we say goodbye to a loved one. And we long to be reunited and have those relationships be permanent. We groan when we see the sin in our own life and we are disappointed that we are not all that God made us to be. And we long for that day when that battle will be done in us and we will stand in God's presence transformed. We long for the day when we will see Christ our Savior face to face. That day is coming. And we will be changed. That day will come when this perishable body will be made imperishable. And this mortal body will be made immortal. 1 Corinthians 15. The day will come when our lowly body will be transformed and it will be like His glorious body. Philippians 3. 
The day will come when we will see our Savior, the One whom we have worshipped and loved and served from afar, and we will see Him face to face. Can you imagine what that meeting's going to be like? To see our Savior face to face. And the day will come when we will see one another free from sin. We will see one another glorified in heaven. All of the dross is removed. We will be transformed and made whole. And we will stand in amazement at what God has done in our life. If that day is what is coming, and it is, doesn't it make sense then that we should live for the line and not the dot? Doesn't it make sense that we should live every day in light of eternity? I mean, shouldn't that change the way that we worship as we come and celebrate and praise God for what He has done? Shouldn't that change the way we look at life and our gifts and our service and our giving? I mean, shouldn't that make us the most generous people of all who give and serve and help because we know what is to come? Shouldn't that make us passionate about evangelism and missions because we want to take as many people with us as we can in that future day? In the summer of 1941, C.S. Lewis was asked to give an evening sermon at Oxford University Church. His message that night was called, The Weight of Glory. And Lewis talked about the longing that there is in the human heart, within all humans. A longing for beauty. A longing for happiness. A longing that cannot be satisfied fully in this world. We not only long to see beauty and to appreciate that, but we long to be in it. We ourselves want to be beautiful. We want to be part of what is to come. We want to participate in those things that are beautiful. And here's what Lewis said. He said, At present we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. And we discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh or pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see but the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. I love that picture, don't you, of the New Testament? The leaves rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. He said, When human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as the inanimate creation is in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. It's another picture, a metaphor, that this world and nature, as beautiful as it is, it's just a sketch. It's the first draft, if you will. But the real thing is in the future. And he went on to say, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. The best is yet to come. Finally, God has given us everything we need to patiently endure the trials and suffering in this life. He has given us His Word, His promises. Promises like those that are found here in Romans chapter 8. Promises that are all the way through the Bible that tell of that day to come. That tell of the rewards for those who follow Him. That tell of the blessings of walking in God's wisdom and His way. Blessings that come in this life as well as for the life that is to come. I think of how often my dad used to tell me how important it was to keep my word. And he would say that, you know, if you can't trust a man's word, what can you trust? And if that's true of people that we are hoping to deal with, say, in business or listen to, how much more true is that about God? If we can't trust what God has said, what can we trust in this world? But not only has God given us His Word, He has given us His Holy Spirit who dwells within us as a believer. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says. He helps us in our weakness in all of life, not just our prayer life. But specifically, He helps us in those times of prayer when we do not know what we ought to pray for. The Spirit prays. There are times that we come and we may pray as we think is best or as God is leading us, but we say, Lord, if it's Your will, let this be done. We come like Jesus, wanting God's will most of all. And the Spirit continually intercedes for us, and He always prays according to the will of God. Have you noticed all of the groaning that takes place in this passage of Scripture? Creation groans. We groan. The Holy Spirit groans and longs for this day that is to come. If life is hard for you right now, you are not alone. God is with you in your trials. And He understands what you're going through and He is there to lift you up and to give you strength and to help you, to guide you and to provide for you. And He wants you to come to Him with those needs in your life. But most of all, what He wants us to do when we go through those circumstances is to keep our eyes on Jesus that one who has run this race before us and who himself endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. He wants us to hold on to his word and the promises that he has given and put our faith and confidence in him. And he wants us to let his spirit fill us and lift us up. And he will do that as we trust in him. And so I invite you today as we close our time in prayer to do that, to express to God the things that are going on in your life that are difficult for you right now and to look to Jesus for that strength. And if things are going pretty well for you, maybe as we close in prayer, maybe you want to remember someone you know who is hurting. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful and marvelous passage of Scripture this is. It is well worth our time to take it and read it and meditate on it and memorize it. What a tremendous future we have, all because of Christ. 
It is far more, Lord, than we can imagine. It's more than we deserve. It is a gift of your grace. And I pray that you would use that hope to encourage our hearts today and to give us strength. Whatever trials we may be going through, we bring them before your throne of grace. And we ask you to lead us through them. We think of those that we know that are also suffering today. And we lift them up before you and pray that you would minister to them. And show us what we can do to be a friend, a brother and sister who comes alongside to help. Father, may we as a church be a blessing to those who are in need. And may we do our best to honor you in the way that we care for one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.